You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. There are a lot of you that are here for the baptism, I'm certain, and so grateful that you were able to make it. What a, what a very special day. Uh, David, Pastor David said, uh, for those of us who have been baptized, he may have said it in a prayer, I think, may we remember our baptism. Uh, Baptists of all people don't typically talk like that. Let's remember our baptism. Not that we are Baptists here, but a lot of us have been Baptists in the past. Um, and uh, the, the significance of remembering your baptism is the promise, not only that you make to Jesus, but the promise that he makes to you at that time. Talk about that a little bit more in the sermon. Um, so wherever, why ever, for whatever reason that you're here today, I'll get it out eventually. Uh, I'm grateful that you're here. If you're checking us out for the first time, we're thankful that you're here. You can get more information uh, after the service with some of the elders, I'll be back there. Some of the uh, others will be back there that you may have recognized from this morning. Talk to, to, to them about the church if you have any questions. Um, if you have been coming for a while, if you're either a member or you're on <clears throat> pace to be, become a member, you're on that trajectory, we would love for you to help not only in children's ministry, but we also need a lot of help in the... Uh, in the back, back here, we need some people to uh, step up for the visual component of the AV team. So if it's, it's a lot more than just clicking a slide uh, when it's time for it. So if you're willing to do that, please see Pastor David. And also, if you're willing when we go to two services to stay for both services, there will be plenty of things that you can do, especially in first impressions area, uh, <coughs> maybe making coffee or tending to the coffee or uh, greeting. We always need greeters. And I know that so many of you greet people anyway. I'm thankful for that. We had visitors here a couple of weeks ago. They said that they were already invited on their first day to two home groups. So that's great. I'm glad uh, you're, you're doing that. Now leave them alone, okay? Let them check. No, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Well, speaking of two services... Our grieving period is over. It's time to be excited about two services. We've had time to just say, okay, this is, this is going to be different. Uh, and for some, wow, this is going to be difficult. But that time has passed. The Lord is doing great things here. And just a reminder, what if we had said, we, we don't have any more room the week before you came? I know you wouldn't want that. So we're going to open our arms wide to the people that the Lord uh, brings our way. And this morning's message is a great reminder of the exciting things that Jesus loves to do in, in, in his story and bringing people to himself uh, through all different kinds of ways. This morning we are continuing our ser uh, series in the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. So far we spent five weeks in the first 28 verses of chapter 1. Now, again, if this is your first time, you might be thinking, uh, not for me. Wait, just, just wait till the end of the, the message. Uh, in order to keep from spending years and years in John, we're going to take big chunks of 
uh, of text whenever we can. And this is one of those mornings. We're going to be uh, in John 1, verses 29 through 51. Could we spend weeks here? We could spend months in this text. But a quick look will hopefully position us all to go deeper on our own. Look, if, if, if all you get from the Word is what you get on Sunday morning, that's not nearly enough. You've heard the analogy that what if you only ate one meal a week? That wouldn't be enough to sustain you. Even if it, you had your meal at Joyce's uh, in Fuquay, it would not be enough to sustain you for the week. So get in the Word, and, and especially if the Lord speaks to your heart in a message, go back and, and look deeper at the text. The title of today's message is, There is a Redeemer. His name is Jesus. Now, we all know that. Most of us do. We're in this church service on Sunday morning. You would expect me to identify the Redeemer as Jesus Christ. But think about this at a deeper level. He's the Redeemer. No one else is. You're not a redeemer. Jesus is the only redeemer. We're going to read one verse to begin our time in this text, and that's John 1.29. And after prayer, we'll work through the text. And as we do, we'll see all sorts of people who are brought into this remarkable story that Jesus is beginning to tell in John chapter 1. If you are a believer, you've been brought into this story. If you're not a believer, you do not have a relationship with Jesus or you don't even know what that means. What does that mean? I hear people talk about having a relationship with Jesus. What does that mean? These guys, uh, these young guys, by the way, this baptism, this is the way it ought to be. Our children professing faith and having a desire to be baptized. Uh, you you recognize that the younger ones don't think quite as conceptually as the older ones. My daughter was about six years old when she trusted Christ. And, of course, the language back then was, ask Jesus into your heart. A lot of these guys use that same language. A lot of you use it. And Autumn told me years later that she fully, she kept looking to the door because she expected to Jesus to walk in the door, cut off the top of her head, come inside, and then put her head back on. <laughs> Do like a hinge thing. And, and the first time she told me, I was like, wow, you really wanted to get saved. <laughs> but the more you grow, the more you understand. But it's right that our children are following in our steps, professing faith in Christ. A lot of people say, you should let children make their own decisions. Muslims aren't doing that. Hindus aren't doing that. Mormons aren't doing that. But we, of all people who believe that Jesus is the only redeemer, we absolutely ought to be sharing this great news with our Christ, with our children and praying they will come to Christ and, and, and praying that they will make profession of faith and follow the Lord in baptism and doing everything we can to point them in that direction. In this remarkable story, we're going to find in very short order that we are a part of a timeless story that could not be more relevant to our day. There's a lot of ground to cover, so let's get to our text. Would you please stand for the reading 
of Scripture. We're going to cover verses 29 to 51, but we're just reading this first verse for our reading. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, those of us who have confessed our sin, who have repented of our sin, and have put our trust in Jesus, find that our hearts rise every time we hear these words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you so much, Jesus, for coming to earth. Thank you, Father, for this magnificent plan. Thank you, Holy Spirit, <laughs> that it makes sense to us because we couldn't understand it apart from you telling us the story and helping us to understand it. So, Lord, we once again with these children profess our faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this morning for Danielle Dickens, who was to be baptized and who is up north at her grandfather's funeral instead. We pray that Eddie and Danielle will be light to their family, some of whom I'm certain are not believers, just as would be the case for all of us if we were going to a, the funeral of a relative. We pray that you would encourage them on this day when she wanted to profess publicly her faith in Christ. We thank you for the redemption that is in Jesus. Sing with me. There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. When I preached uh, two weeks ago, I intended to point you to the White Horse Inn podcast. In fact, this slide that you see on the screen, uh, I, I had it all prepared, but as I invited the elders to come forward, I lost it in the transition. And so we never got to it. And maybe Tony had it up there for a second. I didn't even see, but he rightly just moved on when I forgot it. Much of the information for that message, little bits here and there for all the messages and for the panel discussion that we had a few weeks ago, came from the White Horse Inn podcast. I cannot tell you how profitable it would be for you spiritually if you would get familiar 
with these guys. Michael Horton's message on John 15 uh, about covenant was one of those major, major, major paradigm shifts for me. And when I started looking at scripture in a different way uh, after that message, a lot of things just opened up for me. It's not that I didn't know all of it, but he put it together in just the right way. And it came alive to me. So, uh, White Horse Inn, Modern Reformation, led by Michael Horton. You will not hear from him this year if you're listening because he's on sabbatical. Uh, for the entire year, though, the, the, the guys at White Horse Inn, this conversation between four people, uh, those guys will be examining the gospel of John to which we now return. The Jews were prepared for the moment when Jesus was proclaimed by John the Baptist to be the Messiah. As Neil said in our panel a few weeks ago, the Jews were looking. Now, it's all changed up now, but in that day, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. The scribes, the, the Pharisees, Sanhedrins didn't believe much in anything. They were more political than they were religious. Uh, but all of the religious leaders were looking for a Messiah, even a divine Messiah, to come and walk amongst them. But they just didn't want it to be Jesus. I mean, think about it. Jesus was nobody's idea of a Messiah in that day. Born as far as anyone knew, illegitimately. Of course, we know it was a virgin birth, a virgin conception, miraculous conception. <coughs> he came from a poor family. Uh, Nazareth, we'll see about that today. Everything was against Jesus being the Messiah. But most of all, he called out the religious leaders for their pride. And their arrogance. And he said, you've missed the whole thing. They didn't want it to be Jesus. Think of the trajectory in the Old Testament. Uh, that, that it prepared the people for this time. In Genesis, when Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac, um, the Lord provided a ram for a sacrifice. By the way, it, I, I said this not long ago. Let me reiterate a lot of people come to Genesis 22, I believe it is, where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac and they say, oh, that's a horrible thing. How could God do that? Actually, God was removing the Jewish people from this system that all the pagan religions around them practiced. He made a point. He got Abraham right to the place and he said, nope, stop. Abraham, don't do that. I know what your heart is. And from then on, the Jews were different from the people all around them because they did not practice human sacrifice. <clears throat> but when <clears throat> in Genesis 22, Isaac was about to die <clears throat> and God provided a ram. In Exodus, a lamb was provided for families at the Passover. In Leviticus, animals were provided for the nation on the day of atonement. And now John the Baptist proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's good news, right? That, does that mean that everybody's sins are automatically forgiven? No, doesn't mean that. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders, he will tell them, if you do not believe that I am he, I am the one that God was to send and has sent, who is God himself, you will die in your sins. 
although we don't read the specifics about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. All of that is going on right here. Um, in John 129, we're told that, that, that Jesus' death extends to everyone. His sacrifice extends to everyone who will believe, not just to those in Israel. And you get the sense that, that John the Baptist was excited, saying, you know the one that I've been telling you about? You know the one, I'm older than he is, but he came before me because he existed before me. That's Jesus, and that's the one. I didn't know him until I baptized him. And when I baptized him, I saw the Holy Spirit come in the form of a dove, we saw, and sit upon him, and I sensed the very very, very clearly that the Holy Spirit has remained on him ever since. Why was Jesus baptized anyway? John the Baptist surely didn't get it. Jesus came to John and said, I need you to baptize me. And, and John the Baptist is like, what? You want me to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus said in Matthew 3.15... It's to fulfill all righteousness. Not fully 100% sure of everything wrapped up in that comment. <coughs> but even though Jesus had no sins from which to repent, when he was baptized, he identified with sinful men and women. Now you think about it. And almost everybody, including Presbyterians, agree it was by immersion in that day. Um, Jesus walks down into the waters. These are the same waters where John has been baptizing people right and left. And so John is saying in so many words, I cannot allow that holy head to go beneath these polluted waters, polluted with the sins of all the people who have been baptized here. And Jesus said, yes, but to fulfill all righteousness, I must do that. Jesus, in the same way, these guys were identifying with Jesus this morning when he was baptized. He was, being, he was identifying with us. And in the same way that Maddie Strauss said this morning, all of them, I could have called any one of them, but Maddie. Maddie said, I belong to Jesus. Jesus was, Jesus was saying in a very real way, I belong to Maddie. John the Baptist continued talking about Jesus by saying, you think that the baptism by water is something? You haven't seen anything. Here is one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So now we have another question. What did John mean when he said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit? I bet if we polled the congregation, we would have several different answers. There are a lot of different ways that people would understand this. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. This is not a, a cop-out. I promise you this is going to happen. It's going to take the entire book of John to answer this question. There's going to be a whole lot said about the Holy Spirit in the book of John. Finally, in John 20, 22, Jesus um, will breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And he'll do this immediately after saying, as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And then in verse 23, he starts talking about the forgiveness 
of sins. The short answer of what it means to be baptized with the Spirit is that the moment you were saved, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. As you can imagine, we could spend weeks and weeks on this, and there's a whole lot more to say in Acts 2 and Acts 8 and Acts 19. There's a lot to say. We're going to talk about this some in uh, home group this week, especially the 1 Corinthians 12, 13 verse that talks about the fact that we all, all of us who have believed, have been baptized by the Spirit, by one Spirit, into the body, and he means there the body of Christ. So John says he's going to baptize with the Spirit. And then the very next day, John sees Jesus again, and he preaches the same message. Preaches the same sermon. Behold, the Lamb of God. John understood something that a lot of preachers miss today. It's all about Jesus. In fact, every sermon should find a way to say in one way or another, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This proclamation calls for a response. When you hear something like John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God, then what are you going to do with that? You can reject it or believe it. You can't sort of play around with it. You've got to do one thing or the other. So his sermon called for a response. And indeed, it had the proper effect. Two of his disciples began to follow Jesus. We have the gospel. We have a response. So what does Jesus say? He turns and he asks, what? What? What do you want? Apparently, Jesus had not yet received the proper sensitivity training for visitors. Not sure that David would put him on the welcoming team, the, 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 the greeters. Uh, but it was Jesus. It was Jesus. The point here is not that we should be insensitive to those who are interested, who show interest in, interested in, in Christ. But we must resist the temptation to do whatever it takes to make a sale. Some of you would do anything. You would do anything for your loved ones to come to Christ. You would do anything if your good friend or your neighbor would trust Jesus. But your creative intervention is not going to do the trick. May I? May I? suggest something to you. If you've got a book or an article or a video that you're just dying for your child to see, don't, don't do it. Don't put it, to, don't put it on. Them. Lots of times those kinds of things, if anything, can do more harm than good. If they know what you believe about Jesus and they're resisting Christ, and you've got to back off and pray. Only 
When the Spirit of God baptizes them into the body of Christ, will they find new life? That is not to say you shouldn't meet them where they are. Jesus is going to do that over and over and over in the book of John. We're going to find him encountering multiple individuals. And here's the interesting thing. He never says the same thing to, to a different individual. He's going to approach them all differently. And the thing that has meant so much to you is not necessarily the thing that's going to mean something to somebody else. Now it may. We're encouraged to, to witness, but there are times where we just have to step back. And in fact, it's your own worship of the Lamb of God that will often be the thing that makes someone say, man, I wish I had that. When John's two disciples asked, Jesus where he was staying, they were expressing a desire for an extended conversation. It was late in the afternoon, somewhere around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And Jesus simply said, come and see for yourself. He was saying, come and investigate. See what you think. So if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's a good word to you. In fact, it's not an accident that you're here. Jesus is saying to you, God is saying to you through his word, come and investigate. You come in just because you're trying to find a, a church, a place to be, but you don't know all about, you don't know about all this talk about Jesus, just be here for a month or two. Do exactly what Jesus said. Come and see. In verse 40, we're told that one of the disciples was Andrew. We're not told who the other disciple was, but most likely it was the Apostle John. He remained anonymous in his account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Then after Andrew was converted, he told his brother Simon about Jesus, and Simon went to check out this Jesus guy. But it turns out Jesus had been checking out Simon. That's the way it always is. When I first got saved, I used to get my testimony and, said, and say, I was searching and searching and I found the Lord. That wasn't true. I wasn't searching for anything. I was violently opposed to it. People were talking to me about a week before I got saved and I was cussing them royally. I didn't want to hear it. The Lord ran me down though in his love and brought me to himself. Jesus named Simon <coughs> Peter. The rock. Some have said that no one ever did a better service to the church than Andrew did on the day that he brought his brother to Jesus. So follower of Jesus, how do you see yourself? Almost certainly Jesus sees you differently than you see yourself could deal with pride and say, I've got this, or more likely, you deal with insecurity. I, I think we're all desperately insecure. It just manifests itself in different ways. You may think of yourself as, as foolish or unsophisticated or rash or utterly unattractive to the world. All the things that Peter seemed to display. But Jesus may see something akin to what Peter was in you. One who is vital in his purpose in the kingdom. In fact, on the next day, <coughs> Jesus called Philip to follow him. 
although Philip was perhaps not the best candidate to bear the title of primo disciple, one of the apostles. None of the other gospels mention Philip uh, beyond naming him as a disciple, but John brings Philip into the story several times. And other than the first time, he's not put in the best light. In John 6, when Jesus asked Philip where they could find enough money to feed 5,000 people, Philip said in so many words, uh, not happening, Jesus, not happening. It always doesn't say it exactly. That's the Aramaic translation. You know, we've been talking about all these different. That's from the Targums, I think. I don't know. In John 12, when the Greeks wanted to meet Jesus, Philip, likely too timid to bring them to Jesus himself, went to Andrew and said, hey, we got these guys over here. What do you think? Is this a good thing or not? I mean, they're Greeks. They're not Jewish. What should we do? Andrew said, come on. And the two of them took people to Jesus. In John 14, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Philip said to the Lord, if you will just show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. We'll, we'll be quiet. We won't ask you anymore. You've been talking about the Father. Just show us to us. And Jesus said, really? Philip? Philip, no, no. Look, don't you get he that has seen me has seen the Father. All this time, you don't understand that, Philip, but Philip could have been speaking for all of them. That was just one of the many ways, by the way, that Jesus said, I am God. There's something unique about Jesus' interaction with Philip in John 1. He's the only one in this chapter that Jesus sought out and said, follow me. Now, we see that in some of the other Gospels. But in John 1, <coughs> Philip is the only one that Jesus says, follow me. Philip, the awkward disciple, is the one that Jesus called. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. In verse 45... Philip made a profound statement to Nathaniel, which should be a model for us every time we read the word. We have found him who of Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I hope that that's your experience every time you're in the Old Testament or really anywhere in the word that you find the one that the whole scripture, to whom the whole scripture points Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel was convinced, easily convinced by Philip's passion, right? Not at all. Come, we have found him. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and Philip's like, or Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Playoffs? Nazareth? Come on! Ridiculous! There is nothing good coming out of Nazareth. Now, there are a couple of things to address uh, here. One of which, where is it in the Old Testament that we're told that the Messiah would be from Nazareth? It seems like we covered this in the book of Isaiah. I, don't, I couldn't find it, though. And in fact, the thing that I'm going to tell you after this may have said not too long ago. It seems like... I think I said this stuff very recently, but I, I couldn't find where I said it if it was. Um, nowhere specifically in the Old Testament does it say Nazareth is where 
the Messiah will live. But when you understand Hebrew, you'll see that it is implied in several Old Testament texts. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, for instance, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear his name. Um, so this was understood to be a very clear prophecy about the Messiah who would come from Judah's line. The Hebrew word for branch is Nazir and Nazareth. Without the vowels, it would be N-Z-R, Nazareth. Nazareth, some, it, it, something was called at the day Branch Town. You know how towns have nicknames. So Nazareth was Branch Town. Now, Nazareth was unquestionably a backwater. It, it, it was a, a town that nobody uh, felt really good about. I, I have a bit of understanding of what it must have been like uh, to be from Nazareth. I grew up in Fuquay Varina. And although we call it the Quay today, we live in the Quay and pay Quay taxes, by the way. Um, when I was growing up, it was known as Two Flags Over Fuquay. And believe you me, it was ridiculed. And even Ben McGuire, when he moved, he said, people ask him, really, you're moving to Fuquay? I mean, it just has that kind of reputation, you know, so I, I, I get it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a Carolina football game, as oxymoronic as that may sound, in Chapel Hill. Uh, that's going to change with now that Mac is back, right? But I was there in Chapel Hill, and I was talking with this guy, this real jovial fellow. And he asked me where I was from. I said, Fuquay Varina. He said, Fuquay, two flags over Fuquay. <laughs> and I laughed uproariously with him. I said, ah! Or I just shut it down and walked away. <laughs> I, I can't remember what it was. But I, look, the reaction that I got about Fuquay was the kind of reaction that Philip got about Jesus being from Nazareth. Everyone knows a town they are proud not to be from, right? I'm always interested in people. For us, we thought Anger, you know. Anger, Anger. And all the triangle thought Fuquay, no, we thought Anger. I don't know who Anger, Four Oaks or somewhere. I don't know. But we all think that. When I go to Australia, you know, sometimes it's you Americans. Alice and I went to New Zealand on one of our trips to Australia. And the New Zealanders were like, you Aussies. I'm like, woo, whew, they don't even care about Americans. But man, it's you Aussies, you Aussies. Well, that stuff's going on all the time. And we judge people on the surface, don't we? And we're judged by others based on what they see on the surface. surface. If you are from Nazareth, take heart. God delights in doing great things that no one could have seen coming. No one would have anticipated. <clears throat> Philip, <clears throat> when Nathaniel expressed his skepticism, Philip just simply said, same thing Jesus said, come and see, come and investigate. See for yourself. That's what you got to do, isn't it? Just, just get people to Jesus. Just get them to take a look. Nathaniel, <clears throat> fortunately, took Philip up on his challenge. 
So Jesus surprised Nathanael by calling him an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So probably Jesus is calling Nathanael out. He's like, I know what you're about, Nathanael, because I know you. How do you know me? Even before you were, or while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You'll talk about that some in home group this week as well. So if you think I'm saying, hey, I'm holding back on you, you're right. Go to home group, you'll hear the rest of the story. There's a lot there that's going on between Nathaniel and Jesus. Now, there's probably more than we can even speculate. There's got to be something happening. But Jesus, in some way, lets Nathaniel know, I know everything about you. And Nathaniel's response, you are the son of God, the teacher of Israel. When Nathanael responded with an amazement, Jesus said to him in verse 51. <laughs> this kind of stuff is going on a lot in John 1. You, you think that's impressive? That I know who you are? You need to know you're going to see much more than that. You'll see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. By the way, Son of God, Son of Man... Son of God, uh, a lot of people in Israel took to mean the king of the nation of Israel specifically, but just the children of Israel were the son of God. But when Jesus said son of man, people thought back to Daniel 7, and they knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be divine. Not only Nathaniel, but we also are expected... To think about Jacob's vision in Genesis 28 when he dreamed that the heavens opened up and a ladder was set up on earth and reached into the heavens and angels were coming up and down on that ladder. Have you ever sung the song, we are climbing, 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 Jacob's ladder, 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 something like that. We're climbing Jacob's ladder. By the way, that's a... To the same tune as it's all part of rise and shine and give God the glory. We are climbing. Jacob's ladder, something like that, I guess. I don't know how it goes. It's been a long time. But look, it's not only misguided. It's, it's really, it's heresy to think that I can climb Jacob's ladder, get to heaven. God sets out something for me to do, and I'm just going to climb it up. Climb up there. It is amazing how many Protestants pull the heresy card on Catholics and they're climbing Jacob's ladder. We can't get there, folks. There is only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. He bridges the gap between here and us. And what is significant about that? Jesus came down to us. He didn't say, hey, come on up. Come on up. You can do this. I'm, I'm just going to hang in there. I'm going to encourage you while you, you hang in there. You do it. You got it. You're good. Good job. You know, like 21st century parents. Oh, little Johnny ate his cereal. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Jesus is not, oh, you're climbing the ladder. That's so good. I'm so proud of you for doing what you've done. I don't know what the balance is, but I can't imagine 
that telling our children they are the brightest, greatest, smartest, most wonderful people who ever lived is a good idea. I don't think you should say, son, you may think that was a good thing. You're a sinner. Now, I don't, I'm not going there. But keep the balance in your head. I don't know what it is. If, when I know, I'll write a book. Which you probably won't buy. Jesus is telling Nathaniel, there's only one way to heaven, and it's through me. He's going to say this over and over and over in John's gospel. He will also remind us that we cannot get to him, but that he comes to us. He came to this earth, and he comes to us when we repent of our sins. To repent, if you don't know what that is, is about <coughs> it's simply <coughs> to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you have no hope of standing before God justified in your own strength. There is nothing you can do to make God say, I really like you. I'm just going to let you in. You're good enough. No, none of us can ever be good enough. And to repent means to acknowledge, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And to believe is to believe that what Jesus did on the cross, while it was an example for us, dying to self, yes. But the primary thing he was doing was taking our place. God's wrath must be poured out on sin. It has to be. It's not a matter of emotional feelings. It's a righteous wrath that must be poured out on sin. And when Jesus was on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. <clears throat> and God turned away from Jesus, the pleasure that the Father and the Son had always enjoyed in their relationship was now broken because our sin caused the Father to turn away. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David Calvert and Matt Papa wrote a great song from Psalm 22. I wish we'd sing it more. Why have you forsaken me? Because our sin was upon him. And to believe that Jesus died in your place is to get the message of what it means to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're right back where we started this morning. So in... John 1, we have read about several people who were brought into this astonishing story. Perhaps you're on the very edge, the very cusp of being brought into this story. That's why you're here this morning. God led you here. Maybe, well, no, I'm here because of my grandchild. No, God has a reason for you being here. Jesus Christ, when Paul said in chapter 1, we will preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's as, as though you could see it before your very eyes. That's how real it is when the word of God is being preached. And, and, and Jesus is saying, look to me and live. You ever thought that your sins may be too much for Jesus? Had a Great friend in the mountains. He was a neighbor. He was a moonshiner. Uh, was on WRAL uh, for his moonshining uh, skills many, many, many years ago. 
Clayton really became a dear friend, not because he was a moonshiner. Uh, um, but Clayton had a stroke one morning. I saw him at the store and I said, Clayton, if this stroke had taken you out, would you have been ready? He said, oh, you don't know what I've done, old boy. You don't know what I've done. I said, Clayton, there is no sin too great for Jesus. Call out to Jesus. He will save you. And to my knowledge, he did. I was, I was privileged to preach his funeral three or four years later. Clayton was a different person when he called out to Jesus. And if you're thinking, you don't know what I've done. I can't be forgiven. Look at the verse. He takes away the sin of the world, except for your sin, of course. No. All sin is forgiven when we believe in Him. Believers, you think that too, don't you? My sin is too great. He saved me, but I didn't know any better back then. But I know better now. And still I do this. Still I've done this thing. It's an awful thing. It's too great. You can't forgive me. It's an affront to Jesus to think that my sin is too much for him. It is an affront to think that I can atone for my own sin by living a good life. And it is equally offensive to Jesus' death on the cross to think that I can depend on his sacrifice for salvation and then live any way that I want to. There is a Redeemer. But it's not you. You're told every day that you should redeem yourself. I don't know what it is. Look at the top ten list. I guarantee you. I don't know what it is. But I bet the t five or six of the top ten New York Times bestseller. Make your bed. Do this. Do that. Whatever. You know, self-help. Redeem yourself. Get out of this mess. There's some real value in a lot of that stuff. But it's not, it's not going to redeem you. You're told every day that you should redeem others. And some of you are trying your best to redeem somebody that you know who is in trouble. You're told every day that you should redeem the culture and you should redeem the world. The sad reality is that you cannot do any of these things because you are a redeemer. But it's only sad if you think that you're supposed to do that. You may make progress in your own life, have influence with others. And as a believer, you're called to live as one who has been redeemed and point others to the only redeemer, Jesus, and to steward the creation and the culture in which God has placed you. But there's a huge difference between being a steward and attempting to be a redeemer. In John 1.20, John the Baptist said the most freeing thing any follower of Jesus can say. I am not the Christ. Then he went on to say, <clears throat> I know who he is. There is a redeemer. His name is Jesus. If you will allow yourself to receive this word, I am not the redeemer. And that's the best news you will have heard in a long, long time. Even better news is that there is a Redeemer. And His name is Jesus. Behold, <clears throat> the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believe in Him. Let's pray.
Just before I pray, I will tell you that on the fifth Sunday or the last Sunday of the month, not the fifth Sunday, on the last Sunday of the month, <coughs> we take <coughs> at the end of our service a benevolence offering so that we can show the love of Christ in tangible ways, both to people who are in the body and outside the body. So when the offering plate comes by, we don't normally take two offerings. We just do it on the last Sunday of the month. And this one is a special offering for those who are in need. <coughs> If you indeed are here and don't know Christ, then may I encourage you in your heart to just simply say, Oh God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins. I acknowledge it. And I have beheld the Lamb of God. I have seen that Jesus died for me and I believe in Him. Dear Lord, save me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what a great word. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we yield and submit ourselves to the one who died for us. Thank you for your beautiful plan. And thank you for the Spirit of God who works in our hearts. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.